0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here today with Professor Akhil Amar once again. Hello, Akhil. Hello, Andy.
1: And Andy, you have survived your dental adventure. Yes, we can I'm,
0: tell the audience. I'm back to smiling. <laughs> Anyone that looks on Instagram will see that okay. uh, there's no more hole there. Okay. Um, four hours in the chair today.
1: And I told you it would be just fine. <laughs> and you were wrong. You know, I, I'm, rea- I'm, I'm the patient reassuring the doctor. Yes, you, know? yes. you said um, it would be just fine, and you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of which, you see, because Andy's the doctor and I'm the patient, but Andy was very anxious about all this, and so the patient was reassuring the doctor. In the early 1800s, Aaron Burr, the sitting vice president of the United States, has killed. Alexander Hamilton in a duel. As the sitting vice president of the United States, he presides over the Senate, and all impeachments other than presidential impeachments are tried in the Senate and presided over by the vice president. And presidential impeachment trials, of course, the Chief Justice presides, because otherwise the vice president would preside and that would be a conflict of interest. Not because he, he is a friend of the president, but in the early days, because he was the runner up, the rival. But when the first impeachment of a justice occurred, it was an adjustment—a justice named Samuel Chase, not Salmon P. Chase, the later Chief Justice under Lincoln. But Samuel Chase, um, there's an impeachment trial, and Aaron Burr presides, leading a wag to comment that in most countries the murderer is arraigned before the judge, but here in America we see the Judge being arraigned before the murder, so <laughs> so so that's why you see that. It, I think it's amusing that the patient here is reassuring the doctor. Yes,
0: well, it's over. So here we go. We've been talking about things in the news as as we frequently do, and we were talking about Justice Thomas's woes. And since since we uh, began that conversation, there's been some more uh, revelations about some intertwining of uh justice thomas and his friend and we do want to discuss that but what we what we've decided to do was is to uh, bring in someone who is an expert on judicial ethics and and uh, legal ethics even though it's true that professor moore teaches it um it's still not the same as having the expert or one of the experts so we're going to make an effort to do that in the coming weeks so we haven't forgotten about it and we'll we'll get back to it you know soon right this
1: is not my area of expertise i haven't i've never written an article about it or a, a book about it i do know people who are experts one of them is actually a former teaching assistant of mine i won't go into all the details but i'm going to try to reach out to her. She's someone who's been quoted in all the top news outlets and see if um, maybe she would be willing to come on and share her expertise with us. And if that doesn't work out, I have some other possibilities of folks who are genuine experts that I'd be happy to reach out to because I think there are two issues that the audience needs to know about. One is that this isn't my area of expertise. And second, as I've fully disclosed, because I believe in disclosure, uh, I consider myself sort of a friend of some of these folks. And so it's more awkward for me than for, for someone who's more detached. And by the way, Andy, this I'm, I came to see like with a distinctive clarity. A this is parallel a special, there,
0: you know, yeah. In a
1: way. This is the this is the but this is the problem with applying ethics to the Supreme Court because can you count on each person to police himself herself? That's not so great. Can you count on the other justices to do that? That's awkward because many of them are kind of uh, friendly. They work together. If I'm feeling this and and so, said so much so that I have to have full disclosure, how much? more obviously difficult would it be to have to be the monitor of your eight colleagues. So maybe we need a totally different system. Remember, one thought that I actually advanced is the senior justices in a world where we had a certain kind of term limits could play a very important and distinctive role in maybe applying legal ethics rules to the active justices.
0: Yeah, you know that we talk about a lot of, of checks and balances in the American mm-hmm. system. Yeah, but the, the judiciary, at least in the case of the Supreme Court, is a little bit out of whack. There, you know, sort of things come to the come to a pinnacle at the top, and there isn't that much. I mean, you know, the justice can be impeached, but that's about it. You know, and they can and I, they can be arraigned before murder. <laughs> right? Exactly. But you know, I was just in France, and you know, in France they have a you know, constitutional court, but then they also have, you know, other courts um, that are kind of at the same level as the constitutional court, and they have different uh, mandates. Whereas here, the Supreme Court does original jurisdiction, it does, you know, appellate uh, work, obviously is the main work of the court, but it also is kind of policing its own ethics, um, just as an example. So it's, ha- it's being asked to do a lot. Um So that's... um Perhaps that's a you know something a flaw in the system, although I suppose Congress could pass a statute kind of mandating certain um, you know ethical rules.
1: But again, who enforces those rules? That's and how is that consistent with one one and only one court in the Constitution under Article Three being supreme right. over all other courts? So so there are these complexities, and and let's get someone on board who I know a lot about federal courts but i don't know a lot about the rules of ethics not just for courts but for other branches of government so let, let's get someone on the podcast in a future episode who can uh, walk us through the relevant issues and considerations
0: okay so back to the news um certainly the court has been in the news and we talked a little bit about the um the case i guess it was last week and and uh that came back to uh, in the news again of unsurprisingly. Uh, the uh, Fifth Circuit issued a partial stay, and then the government appealed and now went to the uh, the question of a stay went to the Supreme Court, uh, which then put a stay on 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 Friday. And since then there's been a lot of reporting a lot, and most of the issues still remain uh, because all the stay means is that it's, status quo is preserved and they're going to go back and actually you know hash out the case but uh, let's play a short clip here um, from uh, Face the Nation where the CBS uh, legal expert kind of uh, lays out this is Jan Crawford laying out the way that the court that the case is
1: being seen by the public and we'll Jan just, is a friend of mine and she's a thoughtful person so let's just uh, listen to what she says.
2: We turn now to the Friday Supreme Court decision, which preserves access to a widely used abortion pill for now, while the legal process in the lower courts continues. Chief legal correspondent Jan Crawford joins us. Jan, it's good to have you back here. This was a decision you predicted, 7 to 2. The dissent coming from Justice Alito, Clarence Thomas also objecting. Um, The Supreme Court is keeping the drug available now. So what happens next? Well, that's right. I mean, the bottom line is that this drug will remain available nationwide without any restrictions while these appeals play out. And that could take uh, at least a year. I mean, even though this case is really on a fast track, there's an argument next month before a panel of judges of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Uh, which will decide at some point whether that lower court judge in Texas was right uh, that the FDA improperly authorized Mifepristone some two decades ago. But regardless of whatever the appeals court decides, whoever loses is going to go right back to the Supreme Court and ask the justices to step in and decide the merits whether the FDA uh, properly followed the right steps when it approved Mifepristone in 2000 and then when it agreed to make it more widely available, easier for women to get in 2016. That will set the stage for a major Supreme Court case on abortion access, possibly as soon as next year. Well, I think it's gonna go right back to the Supreme Court because whoever loses will appeal it and ask the justice to get involved and decide it. I don't think that they will. I don't think they'll you don't ever think they'll reach the marriage. Well, I think they'll they'll have to hear it, but I think they're going to dismiss it on standing grounds. They're going to say uh, that these challengers who went after the FDA authorization weren't able to show that they had right to be in federal court in the first place. Um, and let me just, I mean, those are kind of bedrock, conservative legal principles that really go to the heart of this case. To get into federal court, you can't just be upset about some issue. You know, you've got to show you've been harmed, that you have a stake in the case. Uh, it can't be just something speculative in the future. And I think that's a real problem for the challengers here. Now, the lower courts saw it differently. The Trump appointee, federal judge, saw it differently. But these conservative justices take those kind of standing issues very seriously because it goes to the point of judicial restraint. And that's why what they're doing with this case is entirely consistent with what they did with Dobbs, the ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade and last year and sent it back to the states. What they're doing in this case is, is really saying, if they follow this rule on standing, that these challengers don't have business being federal courts. We're gonna set, keep that kind of a high bar for getting into the courts. We don't want federal judges ruling on these social issues that belongs in the political process. So the bottom line for this case, I think next year, whatever they get back to it is I think they're going to dismiss it on standing. I think these conservative justices will join with the liberals and say uh, the challengers don't have a right to sue in this case. It could be eight to one, uh, possibly even unanimous.
1: I think there's a lot of wisdom there. She talked about at least three things. And what I like to do is spend the rest of our podcast Discussing the three things, she talked about standing. She talked about the concept of judicial restraint, and she invoked Dobbs. Said this is consistent with all that. Let's unpack those three ideas: standing, judicial restraint, and what Dobbs did do and didn't do.
0: So, if we talk about standing, th- that comes to the question of who is the petitioner, who is the plaintiff. You know, in in this mm-hmm. case, right? So, who who can come to court? And and in this case, who are they? And why are there questions about their standing?
1: So it kinda of beats me. There are just some some doctors who don't like the abortion concept and they've I guess incorporated in Amarillo so that they can easily invoke the jurisdiction of the federal district judge. There's only one in Amarillo, and they kind of know in advance that this judge has some views about the law that they're going to find pretty congenial. But so far as I understand, they're a bunch of a group of anti-abortion doctors who've organized their association in Amarillo.
0: Right. I mean, my understanding is that the argument that (coughs) they've been making as to why they have standing involves an assertion that... They don't. They say they. They admit they don't perform abortions, and they don't provide. They don't prescribe mifepristone. So you would think like, okay, then what does this have to do with you? And and they're saying, well, someone else might prescribe mifepristone, and they don't think that the drug is safe, and they rec- And of course, like any drug, it's possible there could be a complication from the drug. They happen sometimes. And so someone could have a side effect or a complication. And then they, as physicians in the community, might wind up treating that patient. And then they'll be assuming malpractice liability by treating the patient, like, like with any patient. Um, and, they, and therefore, they might somehow uh, have harm if they, some, they get sued for malpractice for something that they do. I mean, talk about a tenuous connection. I mean, it, ju- it just seems, as a physician, it seems absurd that you would uh, that you would say that. Oh, I might get another patient in my practice, and therefore I'm being damaged. In order to avoid that, you would have to have no patients. So, <laughs> it seems absurd. But putting aside the total absurdity uh, uh, that that uh, appears to in- to embrace. This, there is this notion of someone that is not directly uh, it, that hasn't no harm has come to them yet. There's there's nothing that that they haven't nothing has happened to these doctors yet um, in this case. So is that relevant to questions of standing?
1: It is in today's Supreme Court and Solicitor General Preloger actually I think highlighted in. A sentence that, that I saw attributed to her, the speculative nature of the doctor's assertion that if someone else, some other doctor, assigns to some patient this drug and there's a mishap and then the patient comes to them, then then they're going to have to deal with the mess. Prelogger says that just to, to state this assertion is to refute it. That, that was the sentence that I, I saw somewhere. And the court would say things like this, that it's just highly speculative. My own view is, and now we're starting to talk about standing, you see, which was the big issue that uh, one of the things that Jan Crawford is, is discussing, that the plaintiffs don't have standing properly understood in today's court. They will lose on that issue if it gets up to back up to the Supreme Court. Maybe the lower courts will read the tea leaves of what the Supreme Court has just done and 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 modify their initial thought that the plaintiffs do belong in court. So I think Jan is right as a, Jan Crawford is right as a predictive matter and Elizabeth Prelogger is right that it seems very speculative. I think though that standing jurisprudence is all messed up. The intuition that has been articulated is right in result, but I have a different way of thinking about it. As always, I've got a theory. Okay, here's my theory. That standing is not and should not be ultimately a factual question about whether someone's been harmed or not, and it's not really quite some pure question about whether the harm is immediate or speculative. Courts say all of that. They really do. So Jan Crawford is not making that up and pre is not making that up, but it's all confused. So because the relevant issues are legal issues and not factual issues. And they're actually not quite constitutional issues in the way that most people have been taught by the Supreme court that they are. So big step back. So where does the Constitution say the words standing? It doesn't. So where do we get the idea from? The court would say and has said a gazillion times the idea of standing is implicit in Article 3, which extends the judicial power of the United States, which is another way of really talking about the jurisdiction of U.S. courts, to various categories of cases and controversies. And so on your bar review, on your bar exam, you say standing is because of the, quote, the case or controversy requirement of Article 3. That's what you say. Courts say this all the time. Now, in fact, this is imprecise because Article 3 actually talks about cases and it talks about controversies. Those aren't actually the same thing, truth be told. And every single one of the issues issues that have generated this language of case or controversy over the last half century in in the United States Supreme Court, none of them actually have been controversies. They've all been cases. Controversies, when you read your constitution with care, are about what lawyers call, in effect, various forms of diversity jurisdiction. Andy, let's actually read the constitution together because that's the sort of thing that we do on this podcast. So when I pull out my Hugo Black... Copy of the Constitution, uh, and, and Stephen Sweet, we're um, looking at you now. You know, When Andy and I did our road trip in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and Clay County, Alabama, we, uh, oh, and there's the Interactive Constitution uh, from the National Constitution Center and, and uh, our friend Jeff Rosen. Here's the language. The back okay. The of the Constitution. Article 3, <laughs> Section 2 says the following, quote, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States and treaties made, or which shall be made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors or the public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state, claiming lands under grants from different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. Now, the first thing that I want um, our audience to understand is they heard the word cases, and then they heard the word controversies. Um, the second thing is they, if they were listening really carefully. They might have noticed... The word cases are actually preceded three times by the word all. All cases of a certain sort, all cases of another sort, all cases of a third sort. So the judicial file shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under constitutional laws and treaties of the United States, to all cases affecting ambassadors, public ministers, and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. And then it talks about, controversies and doesn't have the word all. Now, why am I mem- emphasizing this? I'm emphasizing this because this is what I noticed as a second year law student, and I wrote it up and in an article. It's the first article I ever wrote. I published it when I was a law clerk to Stephen Breyer, and this was my job talk, uh, which which got me hired at most of the top law schools, including Yale Law School, okay? Because I noticed that it said all in connection with cases, and it didn't in connection with controversy. And believe it or not, that's important. This is at the heart of the biggest case of the Marshall Court that John Marshall didn't write himself. It's a case called Martin versus Henders Lessee. It's decided by Joseph Story. You might ask, why did John Marshall not Write it himself because very famously he wrote most of the opinions for the Marshall court because John Marshall recused himself Ah, in the case. Oh, because it involved actually land that in which he and his family had a legal interest. Now, of course, this is never going to recur in all of American history that a justice might arguably have an interest in a piece of land or something. Okay. No, we're not going to talk about that today. Okay. That's going to be a future episode, but Marshall recused himself, because it involved, actually, Martin Versen let's see, certain land in the northern, what's called the northern neck of Virginia, the Fairfax Divide. I'm not going to go into all the details. But since I told you in an earlier episode that rules of recusal have kind of shifted over the years, they've become stricter, Marshall doesn't sit on the case. Good. He doesn't write the opinion formally. Good. But apparently he talks about it all the time with the justices informally, the other justices, because they're in the same boarding house. And he writes the, in what we would today call the cert petition. He writes all the legal arguments in his own very recognizable handwriting. So yes, he's not sitting on the bench, but, but he's litigating the case and apparently talking about it um, in the boarding house with the justices. And Joseph Story writes a letter. Uh, to a friend afterwards saying, you know, take a look at this opinion that I wrote for the court. In Martin versus Hunters Lessee, John Marshall concurred in every word of it. That's in the letter. Okay. John Marshall concurred in every and and Story's son, William Wetmore's story, goes so far as to say, this is my father's most famous opinion. It has all the stylistic and substantive virtues of Marshall's best opinions. Uh-huh. Leading some people to think that Marshall may have even like ghost-written the thing. I don't think that's so. But Legal ethics rules have changed over the years, and we'll talk about that um, in a future episode. Okay, back to the Constitution, all cases, the word controversies, and this concept of standing. Every single lawsuit in the modern era where the court has talked about whether a plaintiff can bring a lawsuit, none of them have involved controversies, even though the court talks about the case or controversy requirement of Article 3. Every single one of them has been a dispute about the meaning of federal law, about the Constitution, the laws of the United States, and the trees of the United States. So these all fall under the category of cases. Just to repeat yet again, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this constitution, the laws of the United States and trees made, it shall be made under the authority. And that's about law and equity. And then there's a third kind of lawsuits called admiralty, but that's also all cases when you read your article three. So first point, the court half a century or more says the case or controversy, technically that's wrong. These are all cases it has nothing to do with controversies. That's my first point. My second point is the word standing doesn't appear in the Constitution. That's just a word that the justices have made up over the years. It's okay to make up words and, you know, you have synonyms and all the rest, but you won't find that word in the Constitution. And I'm insisting that if we want to see where the idea is, it's not technically case or controversy, it's case. And now I'm making progress. The question is, who can bring a case arising under federal law? And if you have a case arising under federal law, the courts should hear it. And if you don't have a case arising under federal law, then you're out of luck. And courts call that standing. But I'm saying actually what they really should be asking is, do you have a case? Which is the same concept. It's actually the same Latin word as do you have a cause of action? The word cause is actually etymologically the same as the word case. So when we say, for example, and this is a legal ethics idea, no man should be a judge in his own case, it's nemo iudex causa sua. It's actually no man should be a, a judge in his own cause, his own case. Now, you might think, like Akhil, why are you just giving us some stupid you know, etymology lesson? Here's why. Because once you, If you follow me this far, I'm actually going to tell you what standing is and isn't, and it's not quite what the court has said. Here's the question of standing. Do you have a cause of action? That's a legal term of art. And what a cause of action is, is a legal right to sue. What law will tell you whether you have a legal right to sue? Not Article 3. Article 3 just says you have to have a case, but it's not going to be able to decide whether you know, whether you have it, what law will decide that? Substantive law, a statute, maybe common law of a certain sort, maybe elsewhere elsewhere in the Constitution it might tell us who can sue and who can't sue for certain purposes. But standing on this view is not case or controversy. It's whether you have a case, and whether you have a case is ultimately a legal question, not a factual one. And it's not about whether your injury is speculative or anything like that. It's simply show me the law that lets you sue, explicitly or implicitly.
0: So, um, um, so you're so that's in order for that to be important, it has to be distinct from something, right? In other words, you know the. Um, before, we were talking about, like, well, did something happen to you, you know, that that, that allows you to come, to come to court. So, can you give me an example where something might happen to you, um, but the substantive law will not allow you to come to court?
1: Yes, this is called in obscenuria in Latin. You've been harmed, but not injured. You know, from a certain point of view, something happens to you, but you can't. Sue. Okay. Let's imagine, for example, that Andy knows that I, I, I love trees and wildlife. And, and I, every day I sit and I just look and I admire the view. Now, if a tree is wrongly cut down, it's a beautiful tree. You know, I bought my property just so I could look out on that tree. And if it's wrongly cut down, In some deep sense, I've been harmed. I would have paid a lot of money to avoid this fate that has befallen me. But I may or I may not be actually, I may have a right to sue or not. If it's on my property, I probably do have a right to sue based on property law. But let's imagine that the tree is on someone else's property. It was wrongly cut down, not by the owner of the piece of property, but by some third party Maybe the owner could sue, but maybe I can't, even though it actually has really compromised the the market value of my home. I bought that. I can show you when I bought the house that this was one of the great marketing features that was that was highlighted. You know, beautiful view of this tree or OK, so I've been harmed in, in some honest to goodness, measurable economic way. But I may not have a legal injury. Now, I might have a legal injury if the cutting down of this tree creates a certain kind of, and this is a a property concept, nuisance. Let's imagine that that tree, I'm going back to my boyhood. There was a beautiful willow, weeping willow, and it was right on the edge of our property. But the trunk was actually on the neighbor's side. And they cut it down. No, they're entitled to it's on their side of the property. But as a result of that, there was a lot of flooding and the flooding actually crossed over onto our line. So it's possible now, oh, I do have a property right claim because now there's been a physical invasion of a certain sort onto my land. Okay, that might be called a a private nuisance. Certain other things that violate my quiet enjoyment of my life and environment might be called a public nuisance. Certain kinds of pollution and other things I might have a right to complain about. Maybe I can't see the tree because there's so much damn smog and pollution. Do I have a right to complain about that or not? Environmental laws are going to tell us that statutes, but also the common law of judge made law of property and nuisance and the like. Let's imagine, Andy, that a person A has a deep romance, the, the love of his life with person B. And now person B Has been injured in some torture and is no longer able to be a romantic partner. This is called loss of consortium. Can A, A has been harmed undeniably, you know, no matter what. I I think I've told you enough to say this love of your life, okay? But if you're not, if A is not married to B, A may not have a perhaps a legal right to sue at a certain point. Now the laws could change and we can recognize the law of formerly unmarried persons because we have a thing called common law marriage. If you've been together and live together as a, as a couple open and notoriously for a certain number of years, or if we start recognizing other informal relationships, um, this is like the Lee Marvin case of palimony and all the rest. So substantive law can change in all sorts of ways. It can give people legal rights that they didn't have earlier. It can take away legal rights that they did have earlier. There used to be a tort, it's called alienation of affection, and it was basically a tort of seduction. If A was married to B, and C seduces B, A can actually sue C. If A is married to B, the tort is the tort of seduction. Again, it's called alienation of affection. It's like a breach. um, It's like tortious interferes with contract. If A and B make a contract and C tries to encourage B to breach, that can be tortious. But the law of this has changed over time. The sexual mores have changed. Customs have changed. The law changes. What I am saying thus far is I think courts are wrong in thinking that standing is somehow an Article 3 issue that is to be decided by their trying to figure out under Article 3 who has rights against whom to what. No. Article three just says you have to have a cause of action. Substantive law outside of article three will determine whether you have a cause of action. Substantive law might take into account whether certain interests are, quote, speculative or not, but that's up to substantive law. So there was a time, Andy, where unless a car, and we talked about this before, hit me, I can't comply. I wouldn't maybe be able to complain just because some other car driver was driving without insurance or driving drunk. If they didn't hit me, you could say no harm, no foul. Maybe that was the rule at common law. But at a certain point, we adopted statutes and we say, no, everyone has to have insurance. And if everyone has to have insurance, you could imagine that the law says, and any motorist can sue any other motorist. Who doesn't have insurance? Because that uninsured motorist, even if he never hits me, is imposing a risk on me. Okay, and I'm saying who.
0: So if the law says that, then you can sue them. What if the law doesn't say it?
1: Then the question is, does the law implicitly say that? Because laws, they sometimes they say things explicitly and implicitly. The proper standing analysis is assuming the defendant broke the law. Okay, because you're suing a defendant who is alleged to have broken the law. Did they break the law in a way that violated your rights as opposed to maybe someone else's? Someone cut down the tree, they did it wrongly, maliciously. Okay, but whose rights were thereby violated? Definitely the property owner on which that tree was located, but at common law, perhaps no one else, unless it was a certain kind of nuisance to get rid of the tree. So the, the tr-
0: example that you gave about the tree, I mean, it applies to, actually, <laughs> I have a personal uh, example of that because on, on my, I live in the woods. And you we do, have-
1: and there are special rules in, in Princeton Junction about cutting down trees. Right. That's why I picked that example. Yes,
0: and and in fact, so we've, on our deed, it says we're not allowed to cut down the trees. It doesn't really say on the deed, if you do,
1: here's what what can happen. It just says you can't do it. Um, and, and, and now it's going to be a nice legal question for whose benefit is that stipulation in your deed? And I could imagine a judge very sensibly saying, these... Are um, parts of the deed of every piece of property in this neighborhood, in this plot, and each person has agreed to be limited in their right to uh, cut down trees, in part because they're the beneficiary of similar obligations of their neighbors, and each one basically agrees to forbear and has a right to insist on the forbearance of others, such that if the lip has cut down their tree, I could imagine... Um, A neighbor complaining that that my deed has the same restrictions and these were all mutually mutual conditions of each other. And implicitly, or maybe there's actually a statute that says so explicitly, any one of us can complain when another one of us violates this, that the provisions in this anti tree cutting ordinance this is the question that yes, for whose benefit are they actually designed? And that's ultimately a question of legislative intent. And that's the standing, what, what the courts call standing question is actually a question that needs to be decided by substantive law. So I'm going to cut to FDA in just a second. The FDA has certain rules about procedures that the FDA must go through before it approves drugs. The question is, were those procedures designed for the benefit of other doctors? This seems implausible to me, but my claim is the FDA laws could be written that way. They just, I don't think are. I think the beneficiaries are, for example, the drug customers, such that if a drug is sold that is not FDA compliant and some customer takes it and suffers grievous bodily consequences as a result of that, I'm guessing typically that they could sue and they could sue drug manufacturer and say, this was a negligent drug and the violation of the statute, which was designed for my benefit as a drug consumer, the violation of the statute is negligence Per se, I don't have to prove negligence on all the facts and circumstances. The fact that you, the drug company, did not comply with the proper FDA rules gives me a right to recover automatically. Now, now where did just I learn that?
0: To, that just goes to standing, right? In terms of whether, C- so let's so so C- in this correct. fact, so let's take this fact pattern for a minute. Then, so you've got the FDA has their rules. Let's say, for argument's sake, they violated their their administrative procedures. They approved the drug. But now 20 years go by, and in those 20 years, the safety record of the drug is excellent, such that they would have approved it, even if they did it wrong in the first place. They would certainly have approved it if they had these 20 years of evidence on top of that. Okay, so now I sue. I have a complication from this drug and I sue saying that, well, they didn't follow their procedures in the first place, and I had this complication. Um, now, I might have, is it? So I could see I, a I result. I would probably here. say, well, off the top on. of my head, yeah, so
1: I would pro- that's I, I, negligence per se, but there may be no causation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so, and so it, no harm, no foul, because no causation, perhaps. But what I would say, look, I learned this in first semester of torts. The case is called Gorse versus Scott. Guido taught me, Guido Calabresi taught me tours. In Gores versus Scott, there was a ship. And there were rules about how I think livestock had to be treated on the deck of a ship. You had to have them being penned in a certain way. The company didn't properly pen up the sheep. There was a wave, the sheep got swept off the deck of the ship or something, and the sheep Owners that had contracted to convey the sheep on the ship sued, saying there was a rule, a maritime rule about penning up sheep and you didn't properly pen up the sheep and and a wave hit and the sheep got pushed off the, the deck and we're suing. And the question in Gorse versus Scott is Was that regulation designed for the benefit of this category of litigant? Was it designed for the sheep owners? Or was it instead designed like for the passengers to keep them safe from sheep just um, bumping into them on, on the deck or something? So that's a standing like question. For whose benefit is the regulatory rule adopted? And if The legislature is absolutely explicit. Oh, that's easy. But oftentimes the legislature is not explicit. It it talks about maybe who's regulated, but not, you know, for whose benefit. Ultimately, that's not, in my view, an Article 3 question. That's a question about the statute regulating livestock on ships or the statute regulating the drug approval process. Or the statute regulating automobile insurance, or the statute regulating drunk driving. The Supreme Court made a huge wrong turn, in my view, in a case called Lujan. And and, and see, Jan Crawford was talking about the judicial conservatives and uh, and all the rest, and I think they said some some of them some silly things. And Lujan was a silly thing. And here I want to associate myself with the great Cass Sunstein, who wrote an an outstanding article, actually several outstanding articles on the Lujan case. This L-U-J-A-N. One is a piece in the Michigan Law Review called What's Standing After Lujan. There's sort of a pun. What's left after Lujan and how to think about this concept of standing. I think he wrote another piece called Citizen Standing and Citizen Lujan. But in the Lujan case, Congress has passed a statute saying, in effect, that there are rules about endangered species and anyone can come to court to show that these rules about endangered species aren't being followed. And the court says, well, we don't think they have enough of an injury. It's too indirect, it's too speculative, it's too remote. And I say, not your call. If Congress passes an explicit statute saying any citizen can come to court to sue. That's enough. Let's take it back to legal ethics. Congress can pass a statute saying, here are the rules of judicial ethics. They're A, B, C, D, E. And any citizen who can come to court and prove a violation of the judicial ethics is invited to do so. And the court in Lujan, for the first time ever, said Congress can't do that. So
0: this sounds a lot like the... like the SB8
1: stuff that we had recently. It's connected to all of that, definitely. But, but here's mm-hmm. what Congress should have did, done and didn't. Congress should have said, fine, Justice Scalia. Because Justice Scalia was making stuff up. Supreme Court had never done that before in hundreds of years. John Marshall never said anything like that, that Congress can't create new legal rights. Cause that's what we're talking about. Congress creating. And Scalia had some idiotic things to say about Article two and not just Article three, that, that this interferes with presidential administration of laws. No, because actually you can have. Both presidential prosecution of criminal laws, for example, criminal antitrust laws and private people who are allowed to sue for damages and triple damages, for example, in, in antitrust. So you can have both public and private enforcement of, of laws all the time. So what Scalia said about article two, in my view, was silly. What he said about article three was silly, He's supposedly an originalist. And, and this was the first time ever that Congress had passed a statute. And the court said we won't enforce that statute because Article Three prohibits it. But what Congress should have done is say, say, "Fine, Justice Scalia, we rewrite the statute. Here's the new statute: anyone who comes to court and proves that this environmental law is not being complied with by the government officials at, at issue will win one dollar of damages." Okay? Because now, oh, I'm litigating over a dollar. I have a legal right to that dollar. So for me. The standing question is a pretty simple one. In theory, it sometimes may be difficult to answer in practice, but in the FDA case, were the rules about what the FDA could authorize and couldn't and the procedures by which the FDA was supposed to operate, were they designed for the benefit of doctors like the ones who were bringing this loss? Were they designed to protect Doctor us from the downstream, the far downstream consequences of an improperly authorized drug. And if Congress wanted to do that, they could do that. I'm pretty skeptical that that's what they wanted to do. But that's ultimately a question of congressional intent. You see what the statute says and the purposes behind the statute. This is Goris versus Scott. This is what I learned from Guido Calabrazi, first semester of law school. He called it category of, of plaintiff issue. Final point. Today's Supreme Court doesn't say it that way. Not a single justice says it that way. Steve Breyer doesn't say it that way, even though, you know, his administrative law casebook co-author, Cass Sunstein, thinks about it that way. The great David Curry, the late great David Curry, uh, cited more by the Supreme Court than just about any other scholar in the last century, says it this way in an article called Misunderstanding Standing. We'll we'll put these up on the the, the website. The great Willie Fletcher, a, a judge, scholar, on the Ninth Circuit, writes a piece called The Structure of Standing in the Yale Law Journal, sees it that, 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 that way. But the justices today talk about standing in weird ways. They're just making stuff up. I think it's a kind of a snipe hunt. And the final related point is they are sometimes saying that you can't come to court even when Congress authorized you to. That's a real problem. And if no legislature or substance of law authorizes you to come to court, you deserve to lose, whether we call it no standing or no cause of action or on the merits. But at a certain point, you know, unless you can show that your legal rights are violated, you know, why should you be in court?
0: And actually, to that point, um, you said that sometimes the intent can be I- implicit, you know, the idea yes. of who, who gets... Um, but it's not just limited to statutes. I think you, you said this in passing earlier in this conversation. But just to make it make the point, even if it's an implicit point, a little more explicit, um, it's also the you may have a
1: constitutional right, federal constitutional right. Yeah, let's, right, let's but, take the Fourth Amendment. Right. The Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Now, in my view, that's incorporating by reference state property law and tort law. What law decides uh, whether it's uh, my paper or your paper? Well, that's property law. Whether it's my effect or your effect, that's property law. Well, Whether it's my house or your house, whether it's my person or your person. And when my person is touched, that's actually presumptively, without my consent, a, a tort. That's a certain kind of trespass. The Fourth Amendment, which is Federal Constitution law is incorporating by reference state property law concepts. The Fifth Amendment says the government, the federal government, can't take away my property without just compensation. But who decides whether it's my property to begin with? Well, typically that's state property law. So state property law is sometimes giving me a right to sue federal officials. Put otherwise, state property law is giving me standing to sue federal officialdom i in the old days i didn't sue directly under the fourth amendment i sued some guy saying you know you you um came on my property um and without my permission that's a that's a tort he says oh no i am authorized by the federal government to do it and supremacy clause and i say right back at you dude The federal government did not authorize you to do this because it couldn't because it was an unreasonable search. And if it is an unreasonable search, in legal contemplation, the federal government did not authorize you to do it because it couldn't because the federal government can only authorize reasonable searches and not unreasonable searches. Now, here's the final point, Andy, though. Without state tort law, I wouldn't have been able to get into court at all to even litigate this. State tort law State property law is what gave me standing and, and you're my friend and you're offended on my behalf. But unless you have something more, you probably wouldn't be able to litigate this. And you say, well, it's the right of the people to be secure in our persons, you know, but, but no, in general, I think the more sense, but, the, but now we're not debating Article three or Article two, even for that matter. We're talking about what substantive rights are given to whom, against whom, when and why under the Fourth Amendment itself, you know, what substantive rights does the Food and Drug Act actually confer upon which persons and why? Which in legal terminology is simply, do you have a cause of action? Which, and that word cause is the same root, root word in Latin as do you have a case arising under federal law?
0: Now, so state law can give you a right to sue. Yes. um, and state law
1: can interact with federal law as state property law interacts with the Fourth Amendment. And now you see how this is connected to what we wrote about in Moore versus Harper and state incorporation of federal law and federal incorporation of state law and state incorporation of state state statutory incorporation of state constitutional. This is all really fun, complex Fed court stuff that that I am more expert in than all the rules of legal ethics, which I'm not as expert in.
0: Now, in in the Curry article, Misunderstanding Standing, he also makes reference to a federal statute, uh, which seems like it gives a pretty general right to sue.
1: The Administrative Procedures Act, the APA? This is uh, 1983.
0: Oh, Um, 1983.
1: That's a broad right to sue against state officialdom. When the state or one of its arms, like, you know, city or county or something like that, has violated a constitutional right.
0: here's Um, the clause that he quotes. He says, every person who under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, right, or state, uh, custom or usage of any state or territory subjects any person to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution— or laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law suit inequity or the other or other proper proceeding for redress
1: 1983 vests individuals with a cause of action a sweeping cause of action where when their federal rights have been violated by state officials Uh, my tenure piece the first piece I wrote as, as a student, and it was, um, kind of wacky, and it, uh, it was a student note in the Yale Law Journal about a vo- a voting rights. Then I wrote this piece that I got published when I was, while well, I was clerking for then Judge Breyer, all about all cases versus controversies and Martin versus Angelesi and what that, that word all meant when it came to jurisdiction stripping. Then the next piece that I wrote, which is called of sovereignty and federalism, it was the first piece that I got published as a law professor is all about this stuff. And here's what I say. 1983. Let's. Um, gives, let me get into court when the state. Officials have violated one of my constitutional rights. But what about when federal officials have violated my constitutional rights? 1983 doesn't give me a, a cause of action. So how did I, people enforce their rights against federal officials. And I make two points of sovereignty and federalism. First, they were able to use state law, like state property law, state trespass law, it was state property law that enabled me to sue the federal government to say you took my property and you didn't pay just compensation you didn't sue directly under the fifth amendment you sue under property law they said well we're the federal government we're allowed to do it no the fifth amendment says you're not allowed to do it without just compensation you know i sue the official who gra- uh, touches me or um intrudes on my house and say you came into my house he says Supremacy clause, federal government lets me do it. I said, the supremacy clause does not make the federal government always and everywhere supreme. It makes the federal government supreme if and only if it's acting pursuant to the Constitution. And if you violate the Fourth Amendment, that's not pursuant to the Constitution. And so even if I can't sue directly under the Fourth Amendment, I can sue you in trespass You claim federal authorization under the Supremacy Clause. I claim the Fourth Amendment limits that under the Supremacy Clause, and off we go. But state law got me into court, into federal court maybe, but it was state property law that enabled me, that gave me standing. Now, today, there's this thing called Bivens. That lets some people sue directly under the Constitution. But what did you do? But Bivens is 1970. What did you do before Bivens? And what will we do if the court gets rid of Bivens? Because what the court created, maybe the court might take away. This was my final point. Oh, before Bivens, it was state law. And even after Bivens, states can do stuff. They should pass, I said, Converse 1983 statutes. Here's the Converse 1983 statutes. Any person under color of... Federal law violates someone's federal constitutional rights, you know, can, can, can sue. So read 1983 again, the language that you read from the Curry article. Just read that first clause. Every person who under color
0: of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom or
1: usage of any state or territory. Of any state, you know, or territory. But what if it's not a state or territory? What if it's actually just the federal government more generally? You see, um, that's not a state. That's not a territory. Um, and I say, oh, 1983 gives me protection when states misbehave. But what happens when federal officials misbehave?
0: Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that that, that then you can, you can still claim your constitutional right, but you need a state law in the first place.
1: You need a cause of action. You need something that gets you into court. Mm-hmm. Here's another way of putting it. State property law was pretty good at protecting most Fourth Amendment interests. But here are two situations where it's not. One was Bivens. Bivens, the federal officer, basically demanded to be admitted into the Bivens household. And Webster Bivens opened the door and let him in. And then the officer, I think, if I remember the facts, right? Strip searched Bivens and did all sorts of unreasonable things. But maybe... But under the laws of that state, he had a, a dip, I think it was New York. The problem was New York said, if you let someone in, you can't sue them for trespass. So he let him in under a claim of federal authority. So it just, it, okay. Today, here's a second situation. Ah, they surveilled me in some way using some high-tech ray gun or something like that. And technically, they never committed a trespass. They had a wiretap way upstream on a phone line that wasn't on my property. They used some special electronic microphone technology. They never crossed my property line, but they were able to intrude on my privacy. They violated the Fourth Amendment, but maybe in a way that actually did, uh, did not implicate a technical state law of trespass. So that's why you need, you know, something beyond state law of trespass. Bivens comes along and says you can sue directly on the Fourth Amendment, but suppose the Supreme Court got rid of Bivens altogether. Enter Akilah saying they should pass general, global Converse 1983 law saying whenever your federal constitutional rights are violated in any way, shape or form, this is a generic cause of action giving you standing to get into federal court. That, that's that was the article that took up, or at least part of it. That's what I got tenure for. It's one of the most cited articles of all time by scholars. I say in that article, the fourth amendment was originally enforced by state trespass law, not by the exclusionary rules. So you see, Andy later pieces, I'm going to build on that. And that's going to be my, you know, kind of crazy <laughs> theories about the exclusionary rule. They all come out of that. And when I say governments shouldn't be immune when you When they violate the Constitution, they should pay up, even if they acted in subjective good faith. If they violated my constitutional rights, they should pay. And Converse 1983 should, because in Bivens and other things, there are um, various immunities. The courts created Bivens, they've limited Bivens. And I'm saying states should actually be more vigorous.
0: So, you know, in a sense, if if we take a big picture look at standing, you know, in, in light of all this, it seems like... What's happening here is that the court is, it's a, a bit of a struggle between the court and Congress. You know, that Congress is saying, we have the right to, to decide who, is, who has a cause of action. We're going to say so in our statutes that we pass. Um, we're going to empower citizens under certain circumstances. to. Uh, yes. And the court is saying, no, we decide, based on questions of injury, questions of harm, you know, things like that, Um, kind of, you know, legal uh, analyses rather than statutory provisions.
1: And the courts never explain stuff like the following. Well, if that's true, why can a prosecutor ever bring a case? Because she's not been personally harmed in some way. It's because the law allows the prosecutor to sue on behalf of us all. Well, if the law can allow the prosecutor, why can't it allow any private citizen to, um, to, as, as a kind of a bounty hunter of a certain sort? You know, you come to court, you show someone has acted improperly, illegally. We'll give you a, a third of the take. We'll give you a cut. My colleague, the great Nicholas Perillo, has actually written a whole book about how early legislatures did that all the time. And Justice Scalia and Lujan, wrote an opinion that was utterly inconsistent with those original practices, as Evan Kaminker, the great Evan Kaminker, former dean of the University of Michigan Law School, proved in an article in the uh, Law Journal. Cases like McCulloch versus Maryland, actually, were what were called key TAM actions, where individuals could come to court, and if you could prove that some illegality was occurring, you got like a third of, of the proceeds. Um, actually, the writs of assistance controversy, you know, the informer got a part of the the loot. Um, if you could prove that that someone um had smuggled goods, especially in a world before you have a, a very elaborate bureaucracy, you're creating incentives for other people to come to court and identify illegality. And it's uh, yes, I think the legislature should be allowed very broadly leeway. To do that—that's intention with the Luhan case—and what Jan Crawford said in this um, in her discussion is this is connected to principle, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this: the principles of judicial restraint. But Luhan is anything but restraint because it's invalidating an act of Congress, or disregarding it in the name of constitutional principles that are totally made up without any strong precedential basis. So that doesn't seem restrained to me. Making stuff up that's not in the Constitution, doing stuff that's actually unprecedented, and invalidating acts of Congress along the way. That doesn't seem restrained. Now, in a later episode, Andy, we're going to talk about what judicial restraint is and isn't. And and I've already given you three, you know, different ways of thinking about judicial restraint, which are in tension with each other. Okay. Because being restrained vis-a-vis precedent is not always the same thing as being restrained vis-a-vis the constitution, which is not always the same thing as being restrained vis-a-vis legislatures and government action. And there's still other visions of restraint that we're going to talk about, but maybe Andy, that should be our next episode.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, um and I think it's important because just like in politics you can get you can have situations where you have these memes, you know, fiscal conservatism, you know, or something like that. Yes. You know, stuff like yes. that. Yes. You know, these general principles maybe, you know, under certain, you know, forms of analysis they might make sense, but yeah, you know, but you can't you can't rely on them at the expense of of you know subtle
1: subtlety and well reasoning we, we need to define way. our terms you know what do you mean judicial activism um in in what respect what's your baseline what do you mean judicial restraint mm-hmm. and these sometimes as I said I agree basically with what Jan Crawford said but she mentioned Dobbs. Dobbs doesn't raise these issues at all of standing. It, it might be conservative, but in a you know a different way. So in our next episode, I do want to talk more about different ways of thinking about judicial restraint. And Dobbs, if you're a precedent person, you say, well, Dobbs is unrestrained, it's outrageous, it's 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 tossing overboard 50 years of precedent, Roe versus Wade. But if you're an original sort, you say, well, the, you take your oath of office to the Constitution, not to the precedents. And if the precedents are wrong, out they go. People are talking at cross purposes because they're not properly defending their terms and their baselines, like activism versus restraint.
0: You know, I think standing is a complicated concept. As we <laughs> hopefully we didn't prove that here, um, but well, it uh, is a little complicated. Yeah. But I think I I, th- I find your your formulation uh, first. You know, very helpful and and also it doesn't surprise me in a way because there's a sort of originalism to it. You're trying to find the legislative intent. You know, just like when you analyze the Constitution, you're trying to find intent um and and then, of course I actually am showing you where strategy, going the, where back to the words of the constitution itself
1: yeah the so word standing isn't the constitution the court says case or controversy but actually that's imprecise it's case and once we understand it's case we're almost there because it's actually the same idea as cause as in cause of action and oh now i know how to think about causes of action
0: So we're about ready to wrap up. Um, You know, a lot of times you listen to a podcast and at the end of the podcast, they have credits where they say, okay, it's produced by so-and-so, directed by so-and-so, and and this kind of thing.
1: Um,
0: And that would be produced by Andy Lipka, originating (laughs) by Andy Lipka. (laughs) That's not why I'm saying that. But but I'm I'm reminded today uh, of the day day of the dentist that uh, we should give credit to uh, regarding our theme our theme song. Our theme okay. song was composed and performed by Dr. David Fenster, who happens to also be my endodontist. <laughs> but he, he's also, he's a fine musician, and uh, he actually has a song on, uh, on uh, iTunes now that he recorded with a uh, singer from Fish. So he's he's a serious musician, and anyway, so thank you to Dr. Fenster. Yeah, very much. Thank you, doctor.
1: We love um, the theme song. And
0: uh, in honor of that, I'm going to play the entirety of it at the end of the episode instead of just the snippet that we usually do. So until next week, then. Great.